Welcome to Data Bytes. I'm your host, Susan Wong, and I'm joined by Dr. Derek Fang this week again as we continue the conversation about an algorithm called Merged Average Classifiers via Hashing, or MOC, that made waves at the NeurIPS conference late last year. Hey, Derek. Hello, Dr. Susan. We meet again. That You make me sound like I'm not real, like a cartoon character or something. <laughs> that was not my intention. <laughs> So this is the second half or finale of a two-episode arc on Mock, which means if you haven't heard last week's episode, this might be a good place to start before tuning into our current episode. Right. So yeah, if you haven't heard that one, we'll wait here patiently for you in this terrible dark void that is your mind space. But do come back. Don't leave us hanging. After you hear the previous episode, please do join us right back here to talk about where we are today. Anyway, so Derek, do you want to give a quick recap of what we talked about last time? Sure. So last week, we introduced the mock method as a way of making a massive classification problem more feasible. The example dataset we used, which is what was described in the mock paper, is an Amazon dataset consisting of 70 million queries that lead to product purchases and there are 50 million total products within those purchases. So this is, at its heart, a classification problem with 50 million classes. The amount of memory required to fit such a classification model would be immense using traditional methods. And for that, we don't even have to be using deep neural networks. We would even struggle with logistic regression given how many parameters would need to be estimated. The solution proposed by Mach utilizes a divide and conquer approach. Rather than fit a big classification model over 50 million classes, the idea is to just fit 30 small classification models each over a smaller set of classes, or as we said in the last episode, superclasses, and usually we'll have something like 10k or 20k of them. A superclass is, as it might sound, a collection of classes. So when we say a smaller model, each of these models is still using the full set of 70 million rows, but the set of possible outcomes becomes dramatically smaller in cardinality. We're down to 10,000 or 20,000 possible superclasses for each model. And if we play our cards just right, meaning if we smartly map the classes to the superclasses, this will inevitably lead to a dramatic improvement in memory demands and compute time. That was the missing ingredient from last week's episode. We hadn't discussed how to play the cards, so let's fill in the gap today. One way to think about the problem of mapping classes to superclasses is that we have some data X, right? So usually we think of X as the data set uh, that corresponds to, say, the query's features, and Y are the labels for the purchase items that the query results in. Rather than constructing our classification model based on the original x's and y's, what we're doing is essentially fitting a number of models, say 30, on the original x's, but now on a modified set of y's. Specifically, the goal is to modify the y's so that there's a smaller set of labels, and that's how we're able to save on memory. So let's bring up a concrete example. When I look at my Amazon order history, I see cereal, oatmeal, sunscreen, and paper towels. These could be four out of the 50 million classes that we're assigning to, meaning each query from Amazon might result in a purchase of one of those items. So you had alluded to a way in which you wouldn't want to allocate classes to superclasses. Yeah, so last episode, what I said was, suppose I gave you these 50 million classes and I told you to put them into buckets with no information about why, 
then it seems like the natural thing to do would be to organize them in some way that made sense to you. And that would probably mean putting similar items together, for instance, household items into one bucket. So you could decide that cereal and oatmeal are both kitchen items and lump them in a superclass, while sunscreen and paper towels are household items you might restock every other month, so lump those two into a separate superclass. You can think of this as a clustering problem. You're using your knowledge of similarity between the items to cluster them. With 50 million products, you could of course automate the step using a clustering algorithm on the features of the items. But now the question is, is this natural grouping a good assignment of superclasses from a computational perspective? Well, remember that Mach replaces the single large classification model with multiple smaller classification ones. So if we used the exact same mapping of classes to superclasses across all 30, say, of these models, then we wouldn't be getting any additional information about the specific product that each query might lead to. We'd simply be able to predict that a query is most likely to result in a purchase of a kitchen item or a recreational item or an article of clothing. We'd then need second stage models to narrow it down for us. Which kitchen item? Which recreational item? We've utilized the multiplicity of models to maybe do something like ensembling, uh, but this does not help us computationally because at best, it only gets us halfway to the solution of ultimate product classifications. Okay, so idea number one, let's create superclasses by grouping like classes with like. Turns out it's a bad idea. We want each of our 30 models to have a different grouping of classes into superclasses. I know, I know. Let's um, just randomly assign the classes. Suppose we are targeting 10,000 superclasses in each of the 30 models. So let's just take any old random number generator that spits out sequences of numbers from 1 to 10,000 and use that to map our classes, which we can index from 1 up to 50 million uh, into the smaller set of labels. The sheer randomness of this allocation would mean that each of our models gets a different mapping of classes to superclasses. And if we do this, a superclass would be super eclectic, right? It wouldn't even make sense to put human interpretable labels on it because it might contain a little bit of everything. We just call it superclass A, superclass B, or whatever. Although with 10,000 superclasses, we'd really quickly run out of letters in the alphabet. Yeah, I mean, even if you were to use the Greek alphabet, it wouldn't help. But let's go with that just for concreteness. Let's call these superclasses A, B, and so on. Suppose the input query here, let's just make an example, is cat in the hat. So maybe your first model gives it a 30% chance of being in superclass A, 50% chance of being in superclass K, where just by chance, you have this children's book, Cat in the Hat, in superclass K. And maybe a hat with cats illustrated on it in superclass A. Those are both plausible products. But see, we can't immediately say that this query is likely to result in a purchase of the book because there's a ton of other stuff in Superclass K too. Stuff like bottle openers or rain boots or hand soap. So then in Model 2, maybe the same input query is predicted with a 60% chance of being in Superclass B. And what's in Superclass B? Well, again, cat in the hat, the book. But also maybe an alarm clock, a photo frame, some garden soil, and so on. But because we see the book here as well, we now have stronger conviction that the book might be the answer. So now you can hopefully see why the random allocation to superclasses helps us here. If superclasses in different models overlap significantly, we don't gain much from doing multiple models. 
if for some reason Cat in the Hat, the book, and an alarm clock always landed in the same superclass in all of our 30 models, we'd never be able to distinguish between which of these two is our ultimate predicted class. When two different items land in the same superclass, we call that a collision. That's taken from sort of the computer science literature. So in some sense, what we're trying to do is minimize collisions across all of our items. With 50 million products and a much smaller number of superclasses, this suggests that there is some science to choosing the number of superclasses and the number of models. The idea is that the smaller these quantities are, the faster our compute time and smaller our memory footprint is. But the trade-off is that we're more likely to end up with more collisions in the predictions. There's some theory in the original mock paper that discusses these points in finer mathematical detail. They're definitely important for justifying the use of 10,000 superclasses and 30 models. We'll refer you to the paper to uh, find out more about the details there. But given that this theory supports 10,000 superclasses and 30 models bringing down our probability of having indistinguishable product classes to something that's really low, are we done? Is random number generation sufficient for allowing us to break down the massive compute costs into much smaller ones? Well, not quite. Let's talk about how we'd make predictions using a model like this. As you said, your query of cat in the hat gave us all these superclass probabilities from each model. What does it take to convert these superclass probabilities into class probabilities? At first blush, this sounds like the easy part, right? So you'd go through model one, we'd look at the probability assigned to superclass A, 30%, and divvy that 30% up among all the products in superclass A. Move on to superclass B, say that's 1%, we'll divide that 1% among all the products in superclass B, and so on. We do this across all 30 models and look at which product winds up with the highest overall probability. And so this is actually a good time to point out that this random allocation procedure that we just described, uh, which we we're going to call idea number two, is actually the optimal procedure in terms of minimizing the number of collisions. However, the problem with this approach is that you have to remember how each class maps to each superclass for all of the models. What that means is that for each model, you have to inevitably store an array of length 50 million. Each entry records the corresponding superclass, so there'd be 30 of these. So I'm hearing that idea number two is still too memory intensive because we have to store 30 of these 50 million length arrays. How can we improve on this? So you might imagine that maybe there is no way, uh, but obviously there is because... That would be just hopeless for this podcast. Yeah, exactly. That'd be so funny if by the end of all this, we're like, actually, you know, joke's on you. This is actually not true. Um, anyway, so so let's talk about idea number three, which is a refinement of idea number two in a way that does not require memorizing superclass assignments. The idea here is that we're going to basically take inspiration from computer science. Now in computer science, data compression has long been a problem that's been around as early as when computers were invented. And one approach in this area is something known as hash functions. There are many different types of hash functions, but we're going to talk about a particular flavor of hash functions that are specifically used by Mach, and these are called two universal hash functions. Their purpose is to provide a deterministic way of mapping integers from a large space, say 1 to 50 million, to a smaller space, say 1 to 10k, in a random manner. Wait, that sounds totally contradictory. 
deterministic and random at the same time? Yeah, it's really weird. In fact, this really confused me when I was trying to prepare for this episode. And all the explanations I found online just made me even more confused. Without going into the technical details, hash functions basically do the random allocation procedure, but they have this amazing property that they are equally easy to store and describe. Hash functions, once determined, um, are fixed, and they look like simple functions that help us map from a large set of things to a smaller set of things. Because the function is fixed, we can always use it to retrace our steps to figure out how the superclasses were assigned. This is to say that hash functions inherit the optimal properties of the random allocation in terms of minimizing the number of collisions, but without the baggage of needing to memorize the random allocations. Just to tell you how simple these functions are, the family of two universal hash functions that Mark uses involve prime numbers and randomly generating two numbers per function. Since we have 30 models, all we need are 30 different maps of classes to superclasses or these 30 different hash functions. As an example, a hash function might look like 40 plus 20 times y modulo 16,061 modulo 10,000. That is to say, if we were to enumerate our original labels from 1 to 50 million, which is our y, what we do is we multiply this original label by 20, add 40, and then look at the remainder when dividing by 16,061, and again when dividing by 10,000. And that gets us the superclass label. And so here, why would we pick 16,061? Well, it's because it's prime. Is it your favorite prime number? Uh, no. One is my favorite prime number. I'm hoping that's a prime. <laughs> no, I don't have a favorite prime number. The no, only it's just why funny I... that you chose 16,061. The reason why I picked 16,061 is because, not because it's just some random number. Actually, it's a palindrome, so it's quite nice. But it's because there's a technical detail here, which is that the prime number has to be larger than 10,000. And it just so happened to catch my eye. That's good enough justification for me. Okay, so after you go through this procedure, the hash function now gives you a set of new labels that you can think of as being an integer from 0 to 9,999. That's 10,000 distinct values. And admittedly, these are not letters like A, B, or C, as we discussed earlier for the sake of illustration. So now, in order to recover the class from the superclass, all we have to do is just remember the hash functions, which again boils down to three numbers per model, in the example we had before, 40, 20, and 16,061. So the nice thing is we went from 50 million things to remember to just three. How is that for a steep discount? That looks fantastic. I hope that's not how my paycheck goes, though. <laughs> Hopefully it goes in the reverse order. So note that hash functions have no inverse um, because they are inherently a one-to-many mapping. In idea number two, we had a lookup table that could give us these reverse lookups, meaning given a superclass, we can look back to figure out what classes were mapped into it. We can no longer do that with hash functions. So how the heck do we get from superclass predictions to class predictions? So imagine that we have our 30 models already fitted in the training data, as well as the 30 hash functions stored in memory. The cat in the hat query floats along as a test case. We might start by asking, what's the probability that this query gets a class of one? 
Well, we push y equals to 1 into each of our hash functions to figure out what the superclasses are in each of the 30 models, and then read off the probabilities belonging to those superclasses. Then we'd mark this down, and we repeat the same thing, but now for y equals to 2, and then so on and so forth until we are done with y equals to 50 million. Then we can find out which of the total probabilities is highest, and here we haven't actually needed to use an inverse mapping. And because we just care about which class has the highest probability, we don't even have to keep track of all of these numbers. If we find that y equals 2 has a higher probability than y equals 1, we can already toss out y equals 1 from memory. So the total storage required here in this loop, even though it sounds like a very large loop um, across all the products, um, it's actually just two numbers, right? One for the current maximum probability and one for its associated product class. Well, so actually there's a caveat here, which is that that would be the case if all you cared about was predicting the class label. But a lot of times you might actually want to represent the probabilities for every single class, in which case you wouldn't actually be able to do that nice cute trick that you just described. In any case, it sounds like a lot more work to iterate through a sequence of 50 million, but these are quick lookup operations that are actually quite easy to implement. So there you have it. Idea number three is where Mach landed. And actually, one of the key things about Mach, which might not be obvious from our description, is that it's actually a drop-in method to any classifier, not just neural networks. What this means is that you can apply the principles of Mach to anything from your vanilla logistic regression model to the latest, greatest neural network machine. One way you can think of Mach is that it is itself an algorithm that takes as input a classification method, say logistic regression, and then Mach outputs a mocked version of logistic regression. In computer science terms, we often call this like a wrapper to a function. So in the last episode, you alluded to possibly improving upon Mach's approach. Tell us about what your thoughts were. Let me first preface this by saying that this is all speculation, though I feel like there might be a paper in here somewhere. So if any of you listeners are sufficiently inspired to write that paper, all I ask is that you cite this particular podcast episode. I think you could argue for co-authorship too if you were interested in collaboration, but go ahead. When I talked about the optimality of hash functions, there was an underlying assumption that was unwritten. Namely that these hash functions are optimal provided you don't have any additional information about the distribution of the items. Meaning that of the 50 million products, the relative counts of purchases of each of them is roughly the same. Equivalently, if we were to draw the distribution of the products as a histogram, it would just be flat. But we've known for a long time that the distribution of items that people care about is not uniform across all items, but in fact is very concentrated. You can imagine that the top 100 items across Amazon's entire catalog account for a good chunk of business. Like I bet Amazon Echoes and Kindles are way up there, but an obscure statement mug or t-shirt, gosh, there's just so many of those on Amazon, maybe not so much. So it seems that there must be some improvement to make simply by moving away from this clearly erroneous assumption, right? The reason why hash functions work is because they operate on this assumption, but as we just said, it, that assumption is 
definitely far away from the truth. So I'm not sure how to improve upon this assumption, but I have some ideas. For instance, what you could do is some sort of pre-processing step where we locate the top performers and treat them separately, and then everyone else we can just apply mock to. The interesting thing is that there's actually a whole field that was born out of this problem of finding the most efficient way to represent items, say, using code. And that's the field of information theory. And it's very much a field that lies in the intersection of statistics and computer science. The only problem with this information theoretic perspective is that I worry that it won't be able to reduce the memory requirements in the same way that Mark does. Whereas I suspect the pre-processing step might be able to have the same memory gains. So at this point, I feel like we have a good understanding of mock and what it does. And you even proposed a way to mock it better. <laughs> That's really pushing it. As we do here. Um, thanks for listening to Data Bytes. I'm Susan Wong. And I'm Derek Fing. See you at our next episode. <laughs>